start using cutting-edge warp speed 5G technology with your cell phone. Let me tell you about my friends at MobileMobile.io. They have an ultra-fast 4G LTE and 5G network that covers 99% of Americans. So they've got you covered everywhere. Think about it for a moment. You have the opportunity to take a test drive for 10 days with unlimited talk, text, and premium data. What is premium data? Premium data is an allotment of a cellular data that you receive from a higher priority on the network. You won't get throttled like you will with some of those, well, non-brand service providers. To find out more information, all you have to do is go to mobilemobile.io. That's mobilemobile.io to start your 10-day free trial. SafetyFM.com with Jay Allen. Changing safety cultures one broadcast and one podcast at a time. Welcome to Safety FM, where we talk about safety that's truly inspired by you. Hello, and welcome to Safety FM. This episode of the podcast and the broadcast is brought to you by Safety Focus Moment. There are consultants that can help your organization find the safety culture that you've been looking for. For more information, go to safetyfocusmoment.com. Well, hello and welcome to Safety FM. Today, I have the distinct honor of interviewing Dr. E. Scott Geller, alumni distinguished professor at Virginia Tech is a co-founder and senior partner of Safety Performance Solutions Incorporated. For 48 years, Professor Geller has taught and conducted research as a faculty member and director of the Center of Applied Behavior Systems in the Department of Psychology at Virginia Tech. He is an author, co-author, or editor of numerous books, book chapters, magazine articles, research articles, and courses addressing the development and evolution of behavior change interventions to improve quality of life on a large scale. So you'll be listening to the interview that we were able to conduct with Dr. Geller. The interview was quite amazing. Dr. Geller is just a wealth of knowledge in regards of behavior-based safety. This is one of these podcasts that I have to tell you when I was doing it, I, I couldn't believe that we were going through the interactions of having the conversation. I was shocked with all of the knowledge that Dr. Geller has. So over the next hour, please enjoy this episode here on Safety FM. Dr. Geller, first of all, I would like to thank you for coming on to Safety FM. It is a true honor and a true privilege to have you on. I've been actually teaching a National Safety Council course for defensive driving for a long period of time, and you had been on that video, on the 6-8 version of the video, and I have been super impressed just with the segment that you're on the video where you're talking about paying it forward. And it's a reference there just even in that one piece where you were talking about if you're kind to others on how they'll be kind to you. And I think it's excellent on how it actually kind of ties into your book, The Actively Caring for People in Safety. So I I found that amazing. So I'm sorry for being long-winded at the very beginning, but thank you for coming on. Oh yeah, my pleasure. I know you probably don't get this question because you've been involved in safety for such a long period of time, but how did you get your start in safety and how did you get involved in safety? Well, you know, I was I was a behavioral scientist. I mean, I, I learned how to apply behavioral science 
to improve behavior. And I actually started in, in the field of environmental conservation in 1970, actually, trying to get people to recycle, to carpool, to do things to preserve our environment. And then, quite frankly, I got a phone call from uh, from the corporate safety director of Ford Motor Company. And he suggested that we really need to get people to wear safety belts. And he knew about my, my work. We had done some research on promoting safety belt use with a positive approach. And he said, we, we need to get people to buckle up because if we don't, we're going to have to put airbags in cars. And if we put airbags in cars, we're going to cause crashes. We can't prevent an airbag from not deploying at least one time in a million at the wrong time. So really, we have to get people to buckle up. And matter of fact, an airbag only protects you about 5% if you're already buckled up. And you need to be buckled up behind that airbag if it's going to help help you at all. So that that's where we started. That's where behavior-based safety started. That was 1979 when he called me on that. And we started applying positive psychology, um, applied behavior analysis, or we call it today applied behavioral science to increase safety belt use. And we, we I went to all Ford Motor Company major facilities in those days, and we got the employees buckled up. We, they increased from about 13%. I mean, back in, back in the 80s, people were not using safety belts. Matter of fact, they called them seat belts. They're not seat belts. They're safety belts. But make a long story short, we got we got them up to about 54%. And Dale Gray, the corporate director of, of Ford Motor Company, could document injuries saved and lives saved because people were buckled. So then he called me up soon after that and he said, hey, how about bringing this indoors? How about how about setting up this behavioral science approach, which you call behavior-based safety, indoors that is with our with our corporation? And that that's how that started. That's how behavior-based safety started. Now, the consultants, as we know, they, they took it and without a strong background in psychology, they narrowed it down and they, they made it too simple. And as a result, people were, were complaining. This is not working the way it should. In fact, some thought a behavior-based safety was blaming the employee. It's the employee's fault. We have to make the employee to work safer. And of course, we said from the very start, as Deming taught us, don't blame people for problems caused by the system. So part of behavior-based safety, a major part, is learning from the behavior, what's going on in the environment that's facilitating at-risk behavior and perhaps inhibiting safe behavior. And, and I love that you bring up that point at the end. I mean, that, and that is a fascinating story, especially going back on to, you said 1979, correct? Yes. Yeah, that's when it all started. Yeah. So, but it, 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 it's funny that you mentioned that because when you listen to people that believe in HOP in particular, they try to say that behavior-based safety references that it's the employee's fault. So yes, and you know, well, yeah, Jay, that's that's just so wrong. We never said that, but that is their way of selling. Hop. And, and by the way, the two go hand in hand. My biggest concern about HOP is they want to get surveys. They want to use surveys and they want to, I understand, trying to understand the system, ask employees where the next injury will occur. And you can learn a lot from what they say on a survey. Nothing wrong with that. But when you watch their behavior, you're seeing right there. We don't have to worry about recall or memory. We look right there. What are people doing? And we never... 
We never blame people. It's about understanding the causes of behavior. But like I said earlier, sometimes the consultants took this and simplified it. One consultant, and I saw him do this, he would show the dumb things that people would do to get injured. And then he would make the statement, 95% or more of all the injuries are caused by workers' behavior. And that, that just got the unions very upset. The UAW, isn't it interesting, the UAW came down strong against behavior-based safety in the late 80s. But as I said earlier, it really started with Ford Motor Company and the UAW. So when presented correctly, we try to study, we study behavior in order to understand the system and find out how to improve behavior, period. But again, it was misinterpreted because people didn't have the background in psychology. My first book was in safety was 1996 and it was called the psychology of safety and it said much more than measuring behavior it talked about the human dynamics of safety which includes behavior of course but it also includes our attitude it it includes our cognitions a number of other aspects of people clearly influences injuries and fatalities in the workplace and elsewhere and I have to tell you, here's the interesting part. I was one of those big believers that when I started listening about HOP and about behavior-based safety on how they could not coincide together or they could not kind of see eye to eye or even be, interact with them. When I went to your website, safetyperformance.com, of course, your company, Safety Performance Solutions, I was impressed, yes. I was impressed to see that there is a reference about HOP on there. And it is absolutely. And there's a line right next to me here at Bay Safety. And I was like, OK, maybe I'm reading this wrong. Maybe I went to the wrong website. But no, I was impressed just to see that there's a line in there that references it. And I'll tell you from the from being at the ASSP last week, um, last week in San Antonio and just hearing the interaction between you and Todd Coughlin, it seems like there's there's a lot of point of views that you guys are starting to see a little bit eye to eye on. So would you consider this the new point of view on safety as people like to reference to it? Well, you know, let's understand first, consultants love to come up with something new. You know, they reinvent the wheel. I've seen it. Listen, I've been in this psychology field for over 50 years. I've been a professor at Virginia Tech. I'm going into my 50th year next semester. So I've seen it and I've worked with consultants all that time. They love to come up with their own little label. You'll notice that consultants very rarely reference the research or the scholarship of others. You know, it's, it's like their idea and you know, that's just the way it is. And consultants, by the way, don't have a continuous learning process. They Whatever they left school with, that's their knowledge, and they go out and they consult with that. I'm proud to say that my partners at Safety Performance Solutions, we've been, they've been connected to this university ever since. In fact, three of them are my former students, and we have adjunct consultants with our company that were also students of mine. They got their PhD with me, but more importantly, we continue to communicate about the research in psychology, and they adjust their presentations and their workshops are accordingly. So it's continuous improvement. It's continuous learning. And it does disappoint me that that consultants, quite frankly, they don't read the work of others. They don't reference the work of others. They think they have this new idea. They go out and I'm not picking on any particular consultant. I'm talking about in general terms. But I must say that, you know, you mentioned Todd Conklin. I mean, he really means well, but he doesn't know the psychology of safety, so he doesn't really see the connections. Listen, we're in all of this together, and that we can learn from each other. We need to work together and appreciate the knowledge that each has in this field of occupational safety and health.
Well, with you bringing that up, let me just ask you a strange question here. When you started to get involved with behavior-based safety and really going behind the Ford Motor Company, what did you yeah. believe that was your driving force behind safety? So who was your influence? What research did you do at that time? Well, it was B.F. Skinner. You know, I was, I, was, I was an advocate of behavior. I mean, let's not talk about attitudes. Think safety. That was a common common sign think safety and and people would leave you have to you have to change people's attitude before you can change their behavior this was this was common this was commonly said and people still say that some of the pop psychologists say if you want to change behavior you have to change attitude first or you know what else they say they say you can only change your own behavior you can't change the behavior of others which is so wrong one of the popular fields in psychology is behavior therapy and that's all about changing other people's behavior you know but it's it's done it's done in a correct way i mean it, it's done in a positive way now i must also add another one of my heroes is w edwards deming he gave a fairly a four-day workshop in 1991, and I went to that workshop in Cincinnati. He rocked my boat, changed my paradigm. He was a humanist, and now I'm convinced it's humanistic behaviorism. That is, the behaviorists, we, have the, we know how to change behavior. We know how to do that. But how do you do it so the individual accepts it? So individual owns it, he appreciates it. You know, one of Deming's famous quotes is, is people who help create a process or a program will support it. That's just, and that's humanism. Get the people involved in the process and they will understand and they will get involved. So that that's my point is, I think now it's using the principles of behavioral science, but implementing them in such a way that people understand and get engaged. And by the way, that's humanism. By the way, the, the, the word we, we use today over and over, actively caring. Active is behavior, caring is humanism. So today, I move from a behavioral scientist to a humanistic behaviorist. I like it, I like the term. So if you were sitting, taking that concept that you're talking about right now, and if you were sitting with an organization leader, let's say the CEO of a company, a COO of a company, and you were going to kind of structure their company what would that what would that look like and what would consist of well you know i would start by saying what you've heard other people say lead with safety i mean help the leader help the ceo understand that when you tell the people you tell your organization that safety is number one that we care about safety by the way that's the only way you can tell your people you really care about them everything else is about profit right Right? Everything else is about producing. Not And sure, that's important. That's how we keep our business going. But if I say to you, safety is our number one value, not a priority, it's a value. And we do what we're going to do whatever we can to keep you safe. What does that say to your employees? It says, wow, they care about us. By the way, that's what Paul O'Neill did for Alcoa. You probably heard that story before. I mean, he started out as a CEO of Alcoa several years ago, and he said, we're going to make safety top priority. And some of the people in the boardroom said, ah, you better sell your stock. We're going downhill. Right. And he proved them all wrong, man. He said that you're telling people you care. And when you set up programs or processes, and behavior-based safety is a, is a prime example. When you do it right, you're telling people, look, we care 
so much about you that we're going to set up a coaching process. Now notice the letters of coach. C starts with care. Know that I care to care what I know. I care so much. We're going to observe you working and with your permission, but we're going to observe you and not to not, it's not a, to catch you doing something wrong. It's to understand the behaviors that are going on out there that are perhaps not as safe as they could be because of the environment, because of the system. And then I'm going to A, the next letter of coach says it all, analyze. So while I'm observing you, I'm looking around. I'm seeing what's going on here. What, are, is there equipment? possibilities for for putting people at risk are there demands from a supervisor putting people at risk what's the system like that's the analyze part and then the next letter of coach is another c that's communicate so we have to teach people how to communicate effectively one-on-one so that they accept corrective feedback and of course they're pleased with supportive feedback that's part of the system by the way teaching people how to communicate effectively and if you do all that correctly then next letter is an H. Help. You will help people. You will help the organization do better. Keep people safe. And again, when people believe the organization cares, no, actively cares about you, they're going to work harder for the organization. They're going to feel self-motivated. And of course, that's a whole different topic than what does it take to, to inspire self-motivation. But part of it is convincing the people who are working for you that we care for you. We care for your health and we care for your safety. Taking that, and when you hear now that people are, and I'll use a perfect example, over the conference last week, there was an example that was used of maybe we should stop saying safety first, and maybe we should start saying that it's more of a value proposition when you're dealing with an organization. What's your point of view on that? Because that's, it's almost kind of, it's totally different of what you're saying. Well, wait a minute. Years ago, I, I, I claim to be the first one to say that safety is a value, not a priority. Even though you get on an airplane and, and they say safety is our number one priority. The problem with that language is priorities get shifted. The story I've told many times years ago, when you get ready for work in the morning, you got your priorities? You got your agenda? Sure you do, you know, but suppose you get up late. Suppose you get up late and you have, you're in a hurry and you have to get to work on time. Do you adjust your priorities? You might skip breakfast. You might not stretch. You might not do those routine things you do. But there's one thing you're going to do every day. It's not a priority. It's a value. You put on clothes. You put on clothes before you doesn't might not put on the best clothes, but you're going to put clothes on you before you go get to the job site. My point is that's not a priority. That's a value. And that's our challenge is to make safety a value. I must say, I've been saying this for 30 years. When I used to go to safety conferences, geez, 40 years ago, I would listen to, to those common slogans, think safety, safety is our priority. And I'm, I'm just, I, I just want to stand up and say, wait a minute, watch your language. How about this? We're going to do an accident investigation. That's a total turnoff. First, the word investigation sounds like you're going to find fault, finding fault with people. Who are we going to indict this time for screwing up? And the word accident. I've, I've said this for years. I hate the word accident. It implies chance. It was just an accident. 
And accidents happen to people. President Clinton actually said that when he fell downstairs and he bummed his knee years ago. And that was quoted in the newspapers. Just an accident. And some people say, when it's your time, it's your time. It's just a matter of luck. And by the way, accident implies that. And I say, folks, watch your language. It's an injury analysis. It's not an investigation. We're analyzing to find out the factors. The factors. By the way, it's not a root cause. Oh, there's another silly word we use in safety. We're going to find the root cause. <laughs> I'll tell you what. We can't find a root cause by doing surveys or boot or even observations or asking. That's not a root cause. The best we can do is find contributing factors. I'm a researcher and I know how to find cause and effect. I know how tough it is. You have to manipulate the independent variable and find an effect on the dependent variable. And then you have to remove the possibility of other variables, other factors. That's before you can say cause and effect. So we never know what caused an injury, but we could we can look at the contributing factors. And by the way, there are environmental factors. There are attitudinal factors. There are interpersonal factors. And there are behavioral factors. That's the way the analysis should go. But if we call it an investigation, people are going to retreat. Oh, it's not my fault, you know. And that's not what we want. We want people to get engaged in trying to understand what's happening in our system that is influencing at-risk behavior, injuries, and property damage. I don't like the word, it's not an accident. In fact, let me throw this out. We call it an incident these days. We call it an incident. It's not an incident. The language specialists tell us that an incident is an intentional act. At Virginia Tech, April 16, 2007, we had an incident when a student shot 32, 32 faculty, and that's an incident. That was intentional. This is an unintentional injury. And rather than say that, we just say it's an injury or it's property damage. I'm just saying, again, our language is sometimes a turnoff, especially words like investigation and root cause. Um, it, it turns people off matter when, in fact, we need to get them engaged. And I agree with you because I think what we run into is that we use this language that kind of puts a derogatory meaning behind some of the wording that we actually use. And then at the same yeah. time, too, is the moment in most organizations, they see the safety person, because that's normally how they deem them, the safety guy or the safety gal, which I think yeah. are, are terrible yeah. terms also. But automatically, yeah. I'm in trouble or something went wrong or, oh, here we go again, talking about safety. And it's one of those things that we have to shift that mindset. And a lot of people try to do it with safety management systems and they try to change it with safety cultures. So what do you believe in that? Do you believe that a safety management system should exist inside of an organization? Or do you think it should be a management system where everything's tied in together? Well, first, Jay, we have to, you said mindset. We have to move from being failure avoiders to success seekers. Think about it. If you're seeking success, my students, when they come to class, not that many sometimes, and they're thinking of success rather than avoiding failure. I ask my students, how many are here today to avoid failure? And 80% of, and I have 500 in my class, will raise their hand and I oh, say, wow. I'm so sorry. I'm glad you're here. You're motivated, but change your attitude, change your mindset, you know? I bet you told your your friends, I got to go to class. It's a requirement. Is that how we think about safety? It's something we got to do. It's a requirement instead of it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to learn. That's how safety needs to be. So I want to turn turn people from failure avoiders to success seekers. I want us to wake up, not to an alarm clock, 
but to an opportunity clock. I want us to think of safety as an opportunity to help people. Now, how do you keep score? If you think about how we talk about safety and how we keep score, we're putting people in a failure mindset. If it's only about how many injuries we've had, if that's how you judge the safest company, by the way, I've been saying this for years, how about talking about what have you done for safety? We call it the safety share. What have you done for safety? Oh, I didn't get hurt. That doesn't count. That could have been luck. What have you done to prevent injury to yourself and to others? Let's make a list. Let's count up the number of safety suggestions that you're getting every day. And how many of those is there a follow-up to where you actually change the system as a function of that safety suggestion? How many people are coaching each other? How many are carrying out that coach acronym? Care, observe, analyze, communicate, and help. How many are doing that? So that's becoming a success seeker. When we count our gains, when we count what we've achieved, that's the mindset we got we to gotta change. And, and yeah, you mentioned, I think all of that should be part of production, should be part of safety. It, it, should, not be safe, it, it should not be separate, but it needs to be there. I mean, by the way, production is already success seeking. People count how much we produce, how many widgets out the door, what's our profit. We have to put safety in that same paradigm. What have you done for safety? And that's what I, I always kind of stumble with when I go into different organizations and, and talk to them, because I don't really believe that a lot of them have the buy-in. And I just look at it and I go, wow, how can you change that? And I know that you have a lot of good information. And I will tell you by going to safetyperformance.com, I've been amazed with just the, of the amount of information that you actually have on there. But it's really, how do you drive it to that CEO? How do you drive it to that line level employee where they can totally understand that you're trying to do this? What's in the best interest for them? Oh, that's such a great, that, that is a key question. And it has to start with them wanting to improve. I mean, what, you know, it's interesting that when you have a fatality or a serious injury, all of a sudden, well, we better do something about safety. That's reactive. It's tough to be proactive. It takes, you know what it takes? Here's a psychology term, emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence is is being proactive. And that's that's tough to do because, in fact, some companies, when they're doing well and, and they want to save money, the first people they let go are the safety people. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's very sad because they don't see the big picture. They're not system thinkers. They're just narrow-minded thinking, soon certain positive consequences. That's what I'm after. I'm gaining what I can gain now. They're not thinking of the long term. That takes emotional intelligence. I'm glad that you brought that up. And when, about when you, especially when you made the reference piece right now about what they first cut is dealing with safety. What I have seen in the industry, and I'm sure you've seen it also, is when somebody gets their safety scores, because that's what we're measured by, to improve. I have seen safety managers, safety directors being let go because the improvement, and they think that now the company's ready to go on its own, not understanding that there was some guidance to that ship. And I get into the point of how do we change that for them to understand? It's not like we plateaued. If they, it's kind of, I look at it kind of, almost kind of like a an engineer, like a facility, not a facilities engineer, but an engineer. If they're constantly working on something, well, that could be a good thing, but it also means that your production is actually not working at the time. But if you look at it from the standpoint of, hey, they're maintaining it and it's still running, that's what you're really looking for. And I just don't understand on how some of the upper management don't does not understand of how this plays a crucial factor into the whole equation. You know, and, and I'll tell you what, my partners at SPS, they do a survey. And of course, they, the, the company has to say, look, we want to improve. We want to do better. 
We want to do better. We, we want to have more effective leadership, for example. So, so my SPS partners, they not only assess the safety situation, but they assess leadership. And they do it from 360 degrees, we call it in the academic world. That is, how do the other people feel about you as a leader? And how does a leader feel about others? Now, I should say, however, that everybody can be a leader. It's managers. Managers get assigned their role. Everybody can be a leader. Who's a leader? A leader is someone who inspires others to go beyond the call of duty on behalf of safety and health, if we're talking safety, to do more than they have to, to be self-motivated. And of course, my partners teach that. What It is a learning, but let's face it, if an organization sitting back thinking that they're fat cats, they don't need to know more, they don't need to move forward, they're happy with where they are, we're not going to affect that. We're not, you know, it gets very personal. My daughter worked for four different organizations as a safety leader, and, and, and every organization let her go, not only her, but her colleagues go, because they thought, we're okay now, we don't need you anymore. And so it's it's very ironic that that people think, well, we're doing okay, as you said earlier, Jay, and so we don't need safety because we haven't had an injury in a long time. That's just when they have their injuries. And that's normally when they'll turn around and call someone like yourself and ask yeah. for somebody to come in. Now, give me some information, if you don't mind, about safety performance solutions and when they come in to do an assessment. I know you, you referenced it a little bit there that they do a full yes. 360. Now, how far down inside of the organization do they go? Do they go all the way down to the line level, all the way up to the CEO, or how is it broken down? Oh, and, and all the way. All, and, and by the way, I must say that, that one of my partners 20 years ago got his PhD with me on a, developing a survey. And of course, they continued to modify and improve that survey as a function of results. So here's a point. Many, many companies get surveys and many consultants give out surveys, but it stops there. Oh, we got a survey. Now we have a stack of surveys. You have to do something with it. You have to take those surveys and learn from these surveys. What can we do? What should we do to improve leadership to improve the attitude or the, the, the perceptions that people have with regard to safety in our organization, to improve training, safety training. What can we do? We, we find out where the, where the gaps are through a survey, but then you have to plug up those gaps. And some people don't do that. And here's another very important word that SPS uses, and it's customized. Too many consultants have a program of course, that's very efficient. That makes it very easy. I've got this program. We can do this step and step two and step three. And, and by the way, it's better than nothing. Behavior-based safety as a program where we, we have a checklist and we stand in front of a, an employee and we fill out the checklist and we, we've determined percent safe. And that, that that's a program. It's better than nothing. But the best process, the one that sticks with a culture, is when it's customized to fit the culture. But how can you customize it to fit the culture unless you understand the culture? And that's why you need to start with a survey. And by the way, not only a paper and pencil survey, but some interviews, some some focus groups where you sit down with, with the workers and let's talk. And there's let's be frank and open about what can we do to make things work better. For 
safety and health. Now, when you ha- when you do some of these interviews, and if you do them in a group format, do you have the same ranking of the people inside of there? So if they're all line level employees, or if they're all supervisors, are they the same level? Because I've noticed in the past of if you have a line level employee and their supervisor in there, they will only normally agree with what the supervisor says. I, I've always tried to kind of separate that, which is I've been told it's a good and it's, and it's a bad thing, depending on how you want to break it up. We have found that you need to keep the groups together. And by the way, you then report to the supervisor what the, the results were anonymously. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. If the supervisor in, is in the room, that will influence what people say at that focus group. And so, I mean, and that's too bad. So, by the way, some organizations are not like that. We've run into some organizations where there's mutual trust and openness with regard to these topics. And in those situations, supervisors can be there, but generally you keep them separated. And then you have to have a focus group with the supervisors. And when you find out that, by the way, that's 360 degree feedback. When you find out how do the supervisors feel about the workers and how do the workers feel about the supervisors, it's 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 that mutual perception between that, that needs to be figured out. If there's big gaps there, there's a lot of misunderstanding, but that's how you understand the culture. And that's how you determine what do we do next to, to make this, this organization more interdependent, more safety focused, more, here's the word, actively caring. Great word. I, I love it. And I have to, I'm just going to throw one thing out there. I think that sometimes we yeah. tend to forget the importance of the supervisor. And we talked about that on a podcast a few weeks ago. And the reason behind it is that we tend to forget that upper management speaks to the supervisors to relay a message to the line level employees and vice versa. And sometimes I think that we forget the messaging that comes from them and the importance if we have to hold them accountable and have to be able to use them as the mouthpieces out in the field. And I think that sometimes we just go, uh, well, they're watching employees and not really paying attention. It's one of those things that we tend to forget how important they are and how we need to put our culture into them, really reference the information on what we're trying to accomplish as an organization to them. Jay, you're so right, man. Think about it. The supervisor is frankly determining the culture. I mean, they're the ones out on the floor. You know, the leaders, too many of the CEOs are behind their computers. They don't have time. So the ones who are out on the floor talking to the workers, interacting, they're determining that culture. And so, by the way, we have to teach supervisors about leadership. We have to teach supervisors what it takes to inspire others to be self-directed, to be self-motivated. How do you get how do you get people more engaged in the process? Supervisors need to learn that. They are critical. And of course, top management, CEOs, whatever you want to call them, they have to understand that and realize, hey, if you can't get on the floor to talk to these employees, your supervisors need to do it. And you need to talk with them so they understand the culture we want to be caring for people culture. I agree with you 100% there. So out of curiosity, when safety reform and solution actually comes in and they start working with an organization, have you had those rare occasions where somebody's like, I'm trying to change the culture within the next six months because I'm trying to acquire a contract or you have some very strange requests where they think that there is a time management where we're going to change it that quick. Well, you know, the first thing is, what is culture? You know, I'm telling you right now, you could do something relatively minor that could change culture. Again, Paul O'Neill 
did that. He started off by saying, you know what we're going to do? We're going to make this organization actively caring. He didn't use that word. We're going to put safety first. We're going to care about you getting home to your families without an injury. By the way, that that statement coming with sincerity from Paul O'Neill, that probably had an effect on the culture right away. So some things, some things can happen pretty quickly. But, you know, let's face it, I mean, who knows how long it takes. That's, that could change. But now, of course, you have to support that. When, when Paul O'Neill said that, when the CEO says that, okay, what are you going to do about it? Show me a program. We're going to have a perception survey. Oh, boy, they hate perception surveys because they don't see them going anywhere. But if you do a perception survey and you actually show that we've made some changes around here because of your input. Or how about this? We're going to set up safety suggestions. I mean, years ago, there used to be safety suggestion boxes in, in organizations. Of course, now we have email, you know. <laughs> Send in your suggestions. And the day you start doing something about those suggestions and letting your employees know that we are changing this because of what you said, that can change the culture immediately. I mean, you know, but so again, changing culture can happen with 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 a process like I've just described, or it, it, of course, it really depends on what, what kind of change do you need for you to recognize the change. But nevertheless, there are some basic things that we can do in an organization to turn it around, to make the people believe, wow, you do care about us. If you care about us, then I'm going to care more about you. And so I'm going to do more for you. If you teach a, you teach a leader what it takes to increase self-motivation, we have three C words. This defines self-motivation. Choice, competence, and community. What do I mean? Give your people a perception that they have choice. It's not a requirement. It's an opportunity. It's not about compliance. It's about commitment. How you talk can influence whether I feel I have some choice. In fact, the leader who comes into the room and says, hey, we have a problem. And I'm not, I don't know the solution. He might, he or she might know the solution, but it's not going to say it. I want to hear it from you. So the day you help those, you let those people know that you want their opinion. Remember what Deming said? People who create a process are more likely to support the process. That's choice. That's a choice part. Here's the second word, competence. Dale Carnegie said this in 1936, how to win friends and influence people. Help people feel important. So leadership is about helping those people realize how important they are to making this organization run. That's competence. And it takes simple conversation. How about, how about some recognition? How about a thank you? How about some gratitude about behavior you saw somebody do? That increases a sense of competence. Wow. That can change a person. It can increase their self-motivation. Here's the third word, community. Now, the researchers, DC and Ryan, these are the folks, there's years of research on this. They called it relatedness. People realizing they connect to others. I like the word community because we are a community. And it's a notion of interdependency. We're in this together, folks. We need to become systems thinkers. Just like when you drive on the highway, you know, how many systems thinkers out there? It seems like a war out there. Everybody's trying to get to a location as quick as they can. One car length ahead, they'll pass people on the right and then scoot in front. That's that's not systems thinking. That's independency instead of interdependency. So those are some examples of what we, we need to change that. So in this culture, we want to be community-based. We want to be interdependent. Again, 
Those three words, C words, choice, competence, community. You increase that perception and you increase a sense of self-motivation. People will feel empowered. By the way, I do have a TEDx talk. I'm, I'm very proud of my TEDx talk. It's, it was posted in about three years ago and it already has almost 7 million views, which is pretty exciting for a teacher. And it teaches about self-motivation and what it is to feel empowered. You just Google my name, Scott Geller, TEDx. The X is because it came from university and see what you think. I've had organizations tell me that they play my TEDx talk on self-motivation. It's the concepts, research-based concepts. And then they have a, a conversation. They said, let's talk about what this means for us. How can we take these concepts, for example, of choice, competence, and community and relate them to our organization? And then they, they operationalize it for their culture. And I had a, one of my students come up the other day and she said, uh, she said, Dr. Geller, my dad is a judge and he has his juvenile delinquents watch your TEDx talk. And, I just, and he wants them to see self-motivation. And then, of course, they have to talk among themselves. What does this mean for us? What do we have to do to bring these concepts to life in our home, in our community? In our workplace. You covered so much in just that, in that answer right there, but just the whole portion and how you have this driving force behind you about safety and just listening to you speak and how excited and motivated and really showing that you actually are caring for people for their safety in general. It's just amazing just to hear how that works. Now, I will tell you last week during our conference, you handed me a bracelet and it had a number associated to it and it says activelycaringpeople.org. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit about that? Well, that's, you know, that's a process. And I've been talking the word actively caring since 1991 when I was editor of the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis. The word actively caring is, and that's, that's a word I use in my book in 1996, The Psychology of Safety. But after our tragedy, April 16th, 2007, my students came to me and said, look, the wristband you've been handing out says actively caring for people. Let's put numbers on these wristbands. Let's get, let's track acts of kindness by the way it's not random acts of kindness it's intentional acts of kindness you know we intentionally act to care for another individual and now we have numbers on these wristbands so when you display when you show an act of kindness you can go to the website activelycaringpeople.org and you report that act what did you do who did you give the wristband to and what was that about and you report the number of the wristband and when you hand out that wristband the actively caring people wristband you tell them don't keep this you've joined our movement thank you but i want you to pass this on to somebody else when you see an act of kindness and then they take that wristband give it to them tell them to go to the website activelycaringpeople.org and report that story. All of a sudden, you can see your wristband travel from your town to South Africa. We've seen it happen. So all of a sudden, we're spreading positive gossip. It's about acts of kindness. It's about actively caring. And organizations can do it within their organization and maintain and, and count up what acts of kindness are we recognizing in our organization. So for me, it's 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 exciting. It's it's a it's a it's a token of what we need to do more of. Look out for others. Actively care for people. Again, humanistic behaviorism at work. 
Well, Dr. Geller, if you don't mind, I would love to actually um, go ahead and put a link on our website for um, activelycaringpeople.org um, and also, of course, for safetyperformance.com if you would not mind us doing so. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, man. That's, that's Jay, I, I love that. And, and again, when people go to activelycaringpeople.org, they will see stories. They will see stories that people have reported. Um, I give out books all the time, and, and sometimes people will report that. You know, you send me your mailing address, my friend, and I will send you a book. I've written two novels with a colleague. One is on courage, and one is on self-motivation. It's a novel. See, I am a frustrated old professor. I've been teaching for 50 years plus, but I'm afraid that the stuff that we've learned, that I've taught and done research on, is, is not going to get out to the people. I've read too many pop psychology books that are totally wrong. One book is called Punished by Rewards. You know, another book called Drive is totally wrong when it comes to motivation. But it's, they're not written by psychologists. and they're, they're written by journalists. One is written by a lawyer. And I'm saying that, that I'm frustrated because those books are being read by the public. Do I have tried. I've tried so hard. I've written academic texts, but who reads those? Your students read that. But I've been, so I wrote two novels to try to get it out to the public. And now my, my scholarship I'm working on right now, I'm, I'm proud of it. It's called 50 Life Lessons to Improve Human Welfare. And I've been working on it all summer and I hope to get it out by the end of the summer. But I'm just sharing this to say, and I will definitely send you a copy, but I'm, I'm just trying to share my frustrations. By the way, Deming was frustrated too. He was 91 and he came across as quite cantankerous. You know, if you ask Deming a question, you, you better have it together when you ask that question because he he doesn't want to waste time because he was in a hurry to get his knowledge out there for fear he would leave this earth without sharing what he knows i'm going through the same process myself i'm saying you know what's been my purpose my purpose has been to be a teacher but if i have this knowledge to teach and it doesn't reach the public wow what a shame that's my challenge right now from now until the end of my my days that's what i'm doing well, Dr. Geller, I'll put it to you this way. If you have something that you want to say, you can contact us at any time and we will leave you an open mic format and you can say whatever you want to say to our audience. And I would really appreciate if you did that. Wow. Well, again, Jay, I, you send me your address and I will send you these books. And, and when I get the new one out, the one on 50 life lessons, by the way, when I say 50 life lessons, what am I saying? I'm saying there are 50 lessons from psychological science that we've learned that the world needs to know to make this world a better place. It is about improving human welfare. It's about improving well-being, life satisfaction. And these 50, and there are more than 50, but I, I narrowed down to 50. Matter of fact, my workshop at ASSP was on those 50 life lessons, but I geared them, of course, towards safety. But these are life lessons that everybody needs to teach each other. And I've written this book in such a way that families can communicate with their children and teachers to their grade school kids about it. I mean, each lesson starts with a picture, a cartoon, and then it, then it has some questions about the picture. And it has a one-page description of what that life lesson is about. You know, we're in such a hurry these days going here and there. We don't even take time to read. 
So I'm trying to now develop something that's quick and easy. It's a flip book. You flip it over and there it is. Which lesson are we on now? We're on lesson 35. Let's read this. Let's learn from this. Let's talk about it. And then let's move on. So anyway, that's that's been my my purpose now. We've done the research. We know what works. My partners have gone into companies and, and they know what works to turn our culture around. But it is all about marketing. You saw it ASSP. We got companies putting their names all over the place and paying for that. Absolutely. But it's more about marketing. Too bad that we don't attend more to profound knowledge. You know, it's about it's about the research. It's about science. And, and I think that's where we fail. We need to realize that yes, a lot of a lot of the people now have time spans on what they'll do on spending their time yeah. on doing something. They, it's the instant gratification thing. That's just how things have changed. But it's I need the information. I need it now, and I need to move on to the next thing. So if you try to give them some long spiel on something, they're not going to listen for the most part. And I'm just saying that in general, I I fall into that category from time to time too. It's well, interesting, you know, it, it's interesting it, the approach that you're actually taking with it. And, and Jay, it's our cell phones. Our, our cell phones have put us in that mindset. We And I, I tell my students, that's your operant chamber. That's your Skinner box, you know? B.F. Skinner put rats in chambers and they pushed levers and they got food for the levers and he studied different reinforcement schedules. And that's how behavioral science began. Now we have this operant chamber. We, we carry it around with us. We, we have distracted driving. We have distracted walking for heaven's sakes. Because we're so tuned in to this little box in our hand. Why? It's not an addiction. It's a reinforcement schedule. You push a button and you get an immediate consequence. And you connect with other people so you think. And you, yeah, you do. Yes, it's very efficient. But we're so connected to that. And everything is so quick and efficient that we have a hard time slowing down. Slowing down and maybe talking to someone. Or I, had a, I did a radio interview yesterday on, on nature. And part of that interview was slow down and appreciate the environment, appreciate nature. And but no, we're in such a hurry. We have one of the most pristine, beautiful, picturesque campuses in the world here at Virginia Tech in Southwest Virginia. But the students, they're not looking around at the at the environment. They're looking at their cell phone as they walk the class, sometimes bumping into people. And and I'm saddened by that because that is our culture. And it's becoming more and more a challenge is to get people away from those quick fix reinforcement machines. Be more effective in your communication and understand and reflect on the moment. You know, we we learn from the past. We plan for the future. but We have to learn to live for the moment. Appreciate what we've got. And, it's, and you're absolutely correct with that. I, I am always amazed when I go to large scale events, let's say for like a concert or some sort of a show, the people that want to live that moment through their phone as they're recording it, opposed to actually experience it there, the time yeah. that you paid for. I just find it always interesting. Yeah. Well, let me ask you just one more question, if you don't mind. Yes, sure. What do you want your legacy to be? When they talk about Dr. Scott Geller in a hundred years from now, what do you want them to remember about you? Oh, that he demonstrated to the world what it means to actively care. That he showed people the science, the humanistic behaviorism behind safety, behind health, behind caring. 
the need to be interdependent. You know, if I could just be remembered as starting a movement, the actively caring for people movement that, and I would, I hope, don't know when it'll happen, but I'm hoping it can help turn things around. We have a culture right now, as we mentioned, it's quick fix. There's there's a, a culture of, of denigrating others, talking more about the negativity of other people rather than talking about our successes and our benefits, you know? And, you know, we can, I don't want to mention, the, uh, yeah, I do, I mentioned the White House. Let's face it, they set an example for the rest of us. And we see a White House that does more about slamming others or previous administrations rather than talking about what we're doing. That's a problem. And I'm hoping we can turn it around. Here's something else. As I said this earlier, I want us to become success seekers. I want us to realize the advantage of working for positive consequences rather than working to avoid aversive consequences. Your life is much better when you're working as a success seeker. One more thing, one more thing that we talk about stress. Oh, I'm so stressed. No, it's not stress. Stress is good. Stress is good. The bad word is distress. And the difference between stress and distress is the perception of control. And I ask you, how much is going on in the world right now that puts us in a mindset of, I'm not in control. I'm overwhelmed. I can't even keep up with my emails these days. Well, that can lead us to distress. And if we can relax and look, by the way, I'm a type A. I'm a type A behavior person. I'm always in a hurry getting things done. Here's a challenge. Don't be a type A emotional person where you're angry at other people, where you're, where you're bitter and, and upset and you're always criticizing others. You can be type A, want to work hard, but how about being more kind and more actively caring when you talk with others, when you talk about others? Pass on optimistic, pass on acts of kindness. I want us to pass on positive things about other people rather than negative things about other people. And again, that's what our Actively Caring for People website does. It reports positive stories, stories of people helping others rather than the other side of the coin, the negative side. So your legacy, you really want it to be around this organization or caringpeople.org. You really want that to be your claim. Oh, yes. You know, I, I sometimes I think of divine intervention sometimes in a sense that much of my career has led me to this point. I have friends now who really believe in what I'm saying. But, you know, like I say, I started as a behavioral scientist and that's part of it. Part of it is understanding behavior and influencing behavior. Then I heard from Deming and he taught me humanism. Of course, I knew about humanism before then. I've, I've been teaching introductory psychology for years, but our textbooks separate humanism from behaviorism. And Deming, sitting there for four days, made me realize we have to bring these two things together. So all of this kind of is leading up to where I am right now. Humanistic behaviorism or actively caring for people to make this world a better place. If I could be known as to some extent, some small extent, helping that to happen. Because I'm telling you what, that's what this world needs. We need more people actively caring on behalf of others. 
the top of Maslow's hierarchy is not self-actualization. Many people think it is. That's how we used to teach it for years. But Abraham Maslow passed away in 1970. His last book, The Farthest Reaches of Human Nature, published by his wife in 1971. He said it was wrong. It's, he was wrong. It's not about self-actualization. You know, you, you satisfy your, your physiological needs, then you satisfy your safety and security, then you reach your social needs, and then you reach self-esteem, I'm worthy, and then self-actualization, I've accomplished everything I wanted to accomplish in life. He said he was wrong. Above that is self-transcendence, going beyond yourself for somebody else. What do we call it? Actively caring. So indeed, Abraham Maslow realized near the end of his life that the best you can be is act on behalf of others. And you don't have to satisfy all these other needs to get there. Gandhi didn't, Mother Teresa didn't. There are people, and you all know, your listeners have done this. You help other people before you have all your needs satisfied, and all of a sudden, wow, you feel better about yourself. Your, your self-esteem is boosted. You actually feel you've accomplished something. Your 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 social need might, might, might be lifted up when you help other people. So that's what I, that's what, that's the legacy I want. The legacy of people reaching out to help others to make this world a better place. I actually love it. That, that whole comment that you made there about the transcendence piece, that is so important. And I really think that people that are involved with safety, that's a key piece there that most people do not talk about. And I'm glad that you did mention that. Oh yeah, and that's what safety people have to realize. They are working at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. A safety professional, a safety leader, has gone beyond self-actualization to self-transcendence because they are helping others. And hopefully they are realizing that makes me feel good. If we can get the world to realize how good it feels, we use the word reinforcing, how reinforcing it is to help others, man, I'm gonna do more of that. So what if this world becomes more of helping ourselves feel better by helping others? And by the way, that's what safety pros are all about, you know? That's, that's their self-talk. When they get out there on the field and people aren't listening to them and people, because they're into their soon certain positive immediate consequences and safety pros are trying, trying to get us to think of future possible injuries. They're trying to be proactive. And when they don't feel that successful, they need to say to themselves, I'm working at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I'm self-transcendent. I love it. Well, Dr. Geller, I really do appreciate you taking the time to be on with us at Safety FM. If you do want more information about Dr. Geller and the Safety Performance Solution, go to safetyperformance.com and then, of course, activelycaringpeople.org. Yes. Dr. Geller, I really do appreciate you doing this for me. Uh, thanks, Jay. Let's do it again sometime. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen. 
We are changing safety cultures. One broadcast and one podcast at a time. SafetyFM.com Join the fun on social media and find us on Facebook at SafetyFM. So do you feel like you're missing out on what everyone is starting to do now, that live streaming thing, and you don't know where to start or what to do? I have the resource and the information to provide to you in regards on how you can stream onto 40 social media platforms all at one time. Yes, that's 40-40 social media platforms all at one time. All you'll need to do is go to safetyfm.com forward slash one. That's safetyfm.com forward slash one. That's O-N-E. So just in case, and you'll be able to start live streaming just like you're hearing people starting to do right now up to 40 social media platforms.